When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Brighton, New York. Located in western New York State and sharing a border with Rochester, the town was formally established in 1814, earning it recognition as one of the oldest towns in Monroe County. Named for Brighton, England, the town thrived in the early 19th century by the continued arrival of pioneer farmers. By the mid-19th century, specialized agriculture replaced the grain farming of the pioneer era and instead produced fruit, dairy, plants, trees, and bushes that thrived in the rich soil. Brighton remained a farming and brick-making community until the late 20th century. Today, except for a few parcels, the town is completely developed with homes, office buildings, and businesses occupying the land where farms once flourished. Brighton is now known as an upscale suburban residential area and one of the safest places to live in the state of New York. But in 1982, the inexplicable murder of a young mother in her own bed shook the Brighton community to its bones and remained a mystery for nearly four decades. On February 19, 1982, 30-year-old James Krausneck returned home from his work as an economist for Eastman Kodak just before 5 p.m. He and his wife, 29-year-old Kathleen, had moved to Brighton with their young daughter Sarah only six months earlier for his new job. James was usually greeted by his wife and daughter when he walked in the house, but not that day. When he went upstairs to change his clothes, he entered his bedroom and saw Kathleen in bed, still wearing her nightgown and lying on her side. She had an axe protruding from the side of her head, and there was blood everywhere. James frantically began looking for three-and-a-half-year-old Sarah and found her unharmed and asleep in her own bedroom across the hall. He grabbed her and ran across the street to a neighbor's house to call the police. Brighton police officer Thomas Shermer was the first officer to arrive at the house and the first to see Kathleen's body and the crime scene in the upstairs bedroom. Brighton Police Lieutenant Gary Prenty told reporters there were indications of a burglary. Silverware, a silver tea service, and a silver tray were found on the dining room floor, and a window pane in the back door was broken, with glass all over the floor inside the house. However, at this point, they did not know if anything was missing. No footprints were found in the area outside the back door because there was no snow on the ground. Brighton Police Chief Gene Shaw told the press that they had theories about what happened, but refused to elaborate at that time. Lieutenant Prenty said police believed Kathleen was killed while she was sleeping, which to them indicated that it happened sometime earlier in the day. However, because three-and-a-half-year-old Sarah was dressed, the police were still trying to figure out the details of what had happened. James Krausneck and Kathleen Schlosser met while they were both students at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. 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 <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
ranking up there again with Chattahoochee, Apalachicola. There you go. <laughs> and we're missing one more. We'll think of it. Yes. James majored in economics and Kathleen majored in speech pathology. Kathleen was the second oldest of six children. The two were married in Michigan in 1975, but soon moved to Colorado. That was where James earned his doctorate in modern political economy at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and Kathleen worked as an occupational therapist. Colorado is where their daughter Sarah was born. After that, they moved to Lynchburg, Virginia in 1979, where James was an assistant professor of economics at Lynchburg College, which was a small liberal arts school, and taught there for almost three years before the family moved to Brighton, New York. In Brighton, James worked in the economic forecasting division of Eastman Kodak. And Kath, apparently the reason he did the switch is that as an assistant professor at a small college, he didn't make a lot of money. But moving to Kodak was a big deal because at the time it was the powerhouse for all things photography and film related. Exactly. I think it was the primary employer in Rochester at the time, wasn't it? Correct. James told police that on the day of his wife's murder, he left for work at approximately 6.30 in the morning, which was his normal routine. His wife and daughter were still sleeping. When he got home from work, it was just before 5 p.m., which is when he went upstairs and found his wife. He was afraid her killer might still be in the house, so he immediately took Sarah and ran across the street to a neighbor's. Brighton police said they did not have any leads or suspects and were asking for the public to help if they saw something suspicious in the area. Investigators spoke with neighbors and James Krausnick later that night and said James was very distraught. Police spent the day after the murders looking for a motive and piecing together what little information they did have. As police were able to investigate the crime scene further, they did not see any signs of a struggle and did not believe Kathleen had gotten up after her husband left for work. Little Sarah, who we mentioned was dressed when James found her in her bedroom, apparently dressed herself because she had two sweaters on. An autopsy was conducted the day after the murder, so February 20th, 1982, by Monroe County Assistant Medical Examiner Dr. Evelyn Lewis. Dr. Lewis told investigators that Kathleen died sometime between 4.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. the day prior. More than a dozen people called police with possible information about the murder, including people and vehicles that were seen in the area and noises that were heard. But nothing had provided police with what Brighton Lieutenant Printy called that one main piece of information, that number one lead. Printy said they did not have any suspects, but they were not ruling anybody out. James and his daughter Sarah, along with his parents and Kathleen's parents, who had driven to Brighton to be with them, left Brighton the day after the murder and traveled to Michigan. This was where James and Kathleen had both grown up and all of their family was still there. The funeral was scheduled to take place in Michigan a few days later. Kathleen's 19-year-old sister, Annette Schlosser, said that James, Kathleen, and Sarah were so close that Kathleen's death was going to devastate James and Sarah. Investigators spent the next few days tracking down leads and consulting with the Monroe County District Attorney's Office as well as the FBI. The FBI had been called into the case but was only being consulted for ideas. Brighton Police Chief Gene Shaw refused to comment when reporters asked if the Krausnecks Golden Retriever, which was found by police officers locked in the basement of the home, made any noise when the attack was in progress. Authorities did determine that the axe used to kill Kathleen belonged to the Krausnecks and was typically in the garage, which was attached to the house. 
police found no specific indication that somebody broke into the garage to get the axe. However, the two doors used to access the garage from the outside and from the house were both unlocked when they arrived after the murder. Okay, which makes sense why they didn't find any evidence. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Although police talked with Sarah for a little bit at a neighbor's house on the night of the murder, Lieutenant Prenti said police had been unable to get any information about the attack from her, saying he did not think she understood what had happened to her mother. It was also difficult to talk to James because he was extremely distraught. Three days after Kathleen's murder, two Brighton police detectives went to Michigan to do background checks on James and Kathleen as part of their investigation. At the same time, a Brighton police detective was also delivering several pieces of evidence to the FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C. for examination. But Lieutenant Printy would not say what those items were. He also said that no fingerprints were found on any of the silver items left on the floor of the dining room or on the handle of the axe. On Tuesday, February 23, 1982, Four days after Kathleen Krausneck was murdered, a funeral mass was held at St. Tecla's Catholic Church in Clinton Township, Michigan. It was the same church in which Kathleen was baptized and where she and James were married. The Reverend Mario DiGiulio said at her service, The two prevailing emotions today are grief and bewilderment. We are brought together by circumstances that have neither rhyme nor reason. She and her husband had just begun their home. Although this tragedy has destroyed the life of her body, no number of tragedies can destroy the life of her soul. Kathleen was then interred at the Krausnick family plot in St. Clair, Michigan. After the funeral, James remained in Michigan with his daughter, despite being scheduled to return to work three days after the funeral. So what was that, like a week after her murder? Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. That's not enough grieving time. No, especially with the young daughter. I know. No. Mm -mm. That's awful. James's father, James Krausnick Sr., did travel to Brighton to settle some of the couple's personal affairs. It was also revealed that in addition to two detectives being sent to Michigan to look into James and Kathleen's backgrounds, they also sent two additional detectives to Lynchburg, Virginia, remember this is their prior residence, for the same reason. On Sunday, February 28th, so this is now nine days after Kathleen had been murdered, Brighton Police Chief Gene Shaw said that a rental truck with some of the Krausnick's possessions was on its way to St. Clair, Michigan, where James and his daughter Sarah were now staying with his family. James Krausnick Sr. and two of James's brothers traveled to Brighton to pack up some of the items from the house that James and Sarah wanted. Chief Shaw said police had not spoken with James since he left for the funeral more than a week prior, but he was expected to return to the area soon for his job at Kodak. Investigators still hope to be able to speak with three-and-a-half-year-old Sarah about what she might know about her mother's death, but James had not agreed to that yet. On March 7, 1982, more than two weeks after Kathleen Krausneck was murdered, it was reported that Brighton detectives had questioned Sarah through relatives at the Krausneck family home in St. Clair, Michigan. Chief Shaw said that James had refused to allow police to talk directly to her since the day of the shooting, but did allow relatives to ask Sarah questions and then repeated her answers to detectives. Brighton investigators were working with attorney Michael Wolford to communicate with James. James had hired the attorney on March 1, 1982, the day after he last spoke to the police about Kathleen's death. James refused to talk with police after he hired attorney Wolford. 
Chief Shaw said that police were informed at that time by Mr. Wolford that James would agree to be interviewed by police if they agreed to adhere to a certain set of conditions. Police declined as they did not want any conditions placed on an interview, and neither Attorney Wolford nor police would reveal what the conditions were. Chief Shaw said Brighton police approached James, James's father, and Attorney Wolford about having a police officer or a child psychologist speak with Sarah alone. Authorities thought she might have some important information to share, and they had a lot of questions they wanted to ask her. Brighton police also offered to pay all expenses related to flying a child psychologist to Michigan to interview Sarah alone without any family present under controlled circumstances. At this point, other than talking to Sarah about her mother's death briefly on the night of the murder, no one from the police department had spoken with her. In March of 1982, Chief Shaw revealed that James planned to remain in Michigan with his family indefinitely. You know, Kathy, it was interesting. In reading these articles, I got the feeling that the police were somehow trying to throw shade on James Krausnick about not allowing the police to interview his daughter. Right. Even though they were willing to fly in a psychologist. They were trying to be very accommodating. Correct. However, this is also the same time as the McMartin preschool scandal happened in Southern California. It It was. McMartin happened in early to mid-1980s. We should do that case. We will do that case. I agree. But it was an incredible case because it talked about the power and the ability to manipulate preschool children specifically into saying these horrible, horrible things about people that ultimately proved to be untrue. At the end of March 1982, journalist Gary Guru with the Democrat and Chronicle reported that Chief Shaw said his office no longer believed it would be useful to speak with Sarah Krausnick about her mother's murder, stating too much time has gone by. Almost six weeks had elapsed, and it was unlikely the three-and-a-half-year-old could recall anything. And then, Kathy, I thought this was funny. The chief also told the journalist that the police department had consulted psychics and a retired police investigator as part of the investigation. When he was questioned about using psychics and whether or not he believed them, he said he had a personal friend who was a psychic, so he did put faith in the psychic's ability. Very interesting. Interesting that he said that to the press. Right. I agree. (laughs) I agree. However, he also refused to identify who the psychics were. Of course, there would be journalists planted on his friend's front lawn. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What am I thinking? What am I thinking? (laughs) You should have known we were coming. Why aren't you prepared for us? Why do you look surprised? (laughs) (laughs) But he also would not say who the retired police investigator was, nor would he say what information, if any, they provided to the police department in this investigation. Almost five months later, on July 18, 1982, an article in the Democrat and Chronicle by journalist Dan Bowerman reported that Chief Shaw said Kathleen Krausnick's horrific murder remained very much on the minds of the town's residents. The journalist also said that it was a shame that the police department had been unable to solve it. The chief said that they had exhausted all of their leads, but the case would remain open until something else happened to make them think they could close it. In the prior six months, the Brighton Police Department spent more than $10,000 and interviewed between 300 and 400 people in four states trying to solve Kathleen's death. And, oh my God, Kathy, I just realized, Hmm. I don't know what $10,000 is in 2022 (gasps) dollars. Shame on you. I never looked it up. (laughs) I know what it is. You do not. I know, I don't. (laughs) I just lied. (laughs) 
Brighton Town Supervisor Richard Wiles said that the town board had told the chief to continue working on the cases and not worry about the cost. The telephone tips and anonymous letters that police received after the murder had stopped. Chief Shaw justified all of the travel and interviews as being necessary just to learn about who James and Kathleen Krausneck were. As we mentioned, they had only lived in Brighton for six months at the time of Kathleen's murder, and no one they regularly came in contact with, neighbors, co-workers, whomever, knew them very well. And while the Brighton Police Department had started with seven investigators on the case, now five months later, they were down to two detectives only working part-time on the case. So, Kath, another interesting thing that came up as part of this article is that Chief Shaw told the reporter that when the police briefly spoke to Sarah the night of the murder, she told them a bad man in mommy and daddy's bed with a hammer on his head. Interesting. Well, it is. But this also takes me back to episode 47, Melissa Jenkins in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. Melissa Jenkins. Yes, exactly. She was killed? Yes, in front of her child. Right. Her child was two years old. The police had the child speak with child psychologists about what he saw, hoping that he would be able to identify somebody, something like that. Exactly. And he talked about a bad man. Mm-hmm. Remember, he was two. And at the time of Melissa's murder, she wasn't with the baby's father, if I recall correctly. You're exactly right. Exactly. So when the child psychologist talked to this little boy about what he saw, he said he saw a bad man. Right. And the psychologist said at two, he was still old enough to have known if it was his father. And because he didn't say that, the father was not a suspect in it. Right. They believed it was somebody else. Right. Okay. so this little girl is three and a half years old and she says a bad man in mommy and daddy's bed. This is how times have changed, Kath, is that in 1982, of course, they're not listening to this little girl when she says a bad man. Right. What do you mean? What I'm saying is in St. Johnsbury, they trusted that the two year old knew her dad from a bad man and would have identified him. Right. She would have said daddy. Right. And so I thought this was interesting because I did not read a single thing about an analysis of what Sarah Krausnick said to the police. I know I didn't either, but I agree with you 100 percent. The Krausneck home where Kathleen was killed was put up for sale at the end of June 1982 without James and daughter Sarah ever returning to the house. James and Sarah stayed in Michigan, Kath, and they started working for his father's carpet company. Uh, they did? Well, <laughs> Sarah? Sarah was highly advanced. <laughs> Laying carpet at four? <laughs> she was always very precocious. Oh, I bet. <laughs> anyway, James began working with his dad at his carpet company. Makes a little more sense. <laughs> On February 20th, 1983, one year after Kathleen's murder, journalist David Galante with the Democrat and Chronicle wrote an article about the anniversary of her death. It included Mr. Galante traveling to Michigan where he spoke with James about the case. Okay, wait, I have to interrupt here again too, and I'm sorry. When I read the article, the headline of it was, it didn't say the word intrepid, but it was like investigative reporter goes to Michigan and speaks with James Krausneck about lingering questions in his wife's death. Makes it sound like it's this big exclusive. He went and sat down and had a conversation with him. Right. Yeah, I think he ambushed him at the store. Right. <laughs> I honestly, by what he was reading, he walked in. James was probably like, hi, are you looking for shag? Are you looking for Berber? Do you want a plush pile today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Galante was the one who chose the headline of the article. <laughs> no doubt. So Galante described the scene when he spoke with James. He says he's standing at his father's carpet store in Mount Clemens, Michigan, neatly dressed in a blue blazer and a red silk tie. 
James' eyes became filled with tears and he began to tremble when asked about his wife's death. That's what made me think he was ambushed. Oh, a hundred percent. You don't say meet me at the carpet store to discuss this. Anyway, James says, I understand police have their jobs to do. I appreciate that. But that's too difficult for me to talk about. I just want to put it all behind me now. I'd really rather not discuss it. It's hard enough for me to deal with. I don't see how other people would want to hear about it. It's been my decision, my policy not to talk, and I'd rather stick with my policy. Galante reported that police said James's silence after his wife's death had hampered their chances of finding the killer. James said he wanted to forget that February night when he came home from work and found his wife still in her nightgown in bed with an axe embedded in the side of her head. Although Brighton police said James was not a suspect, they wanted to interview him as a key material witness in the February 1982 murder. Chief Shaw said that they had not had the privilege of talking to James, but they would still like to speak with him very much so. He was a primary witness and allegedly the last person to see his wife alive. Brighton police wanted to know more of what happened the day and night before Kathleen's murder. Galante's article included that there is no law that states an individual must submit to a police interview. The only way authorities can force someone to be subjected to questioning was to subpoena that person to testify before a grand jury. However, in New York State, an individual who is subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury is given immunity from prosecution in that case unless the individual waives it in writing. Assistant Monroe County District Attorney Douglas Rowe, head of the DA's Homicide Bureau, said, We do not want to give him immunity in this case. Galante also reported that James and his now four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah, were living with James's parents in a well-to-do section of St. Clair, Michigan, where James grew up. The Krausnecks were one of the oldest and most prominent families in the St. Clair and Mount Clemens areas, having owned businesses in Mount Clemens for more than 50 years at that time. On July 31st, 1985, so almost three and a half years after Kathleen's murder, journalist Mark Pittman with the Democrat and Chronicle reported that the investigation into Kathleen's murder was renewed the day before when two Brighton police detectives and an assistant district attorney flew to Michigan to interview Kathleen's parents. It was the fifth time in the past three and a half years that Brighton detectives traveled to Michigan as part of their investigation. So, Kathy, what was reported is that the two detectives and the assistant district attorney Uh went to talk to Kathleen's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Schlosser. The investigators were there to talk to the Schlossers because the district attorney at the time, Howard Rellin, said that he had not been contacted at all in the past three and a half years by any member of the Schlosser family and said there had not been a single contact between any law enforcement agencies and Kathleen's parents since the murder occurred. And in his experience, this was unprecedented because normally the victim's parents are always on the phone checking on the investigation, asking about suspects, anything at all. But in this case, neither Mr. and Mrs. Schlosser nor Kathleen's siblings had ever expressed any interest. Okay, Kath, but what are you taking from that? 
I mean, I thought it was weird when I read that. I couldn't decide whether the police were trying to impugn the Schlossers. I don't know. My feeling was, and it was something that not only did I kind of feel it as I was reading it, but inferred it from later articles that I'd read. Okay. Is that I think they were trying to put pressure on the family because they thought that they were hiding James. That was the implication I drew. You haven't contacted us. What do you have to hide? Exactly. I thought it was a very strange sort of shot over the bow. I thought it was an extremely aggressive shot over the bow to a family who had lost their daughter to a horrific murder. Yeah. Now, Kath, nothing came of these interviews with the Schlossers. And in fact, in February of 1991, six years after detectives spoke to the family and nine years after the murder, Kathleen's sister Annette Schlosser was quoted in a newspaper saying that she thought that Kathleen's murderer was just some crazed psycho. She said it could have been a case of mistaken identity or maybe someone high on drugs who broke in and probably didn't remember it, so they'll never confess. Annette and other relatives complained after the murder that the investigation seemed to focus unfairly on James, and they still felt this way nine years later. She said she was speaking on behalf of her entire family when she said they were still 100% behind him. Lieutenant Printy with the Brighton Police Department said they still had questions for James concerning his academic background. When James was hired at Kodak, he told his new employer that he had a doctorate in economics. But at some point before Kathleen's murder, Kodak officials called Colorado State University from where he said he received his degree and learned that he actually did not, in fact, have a degree. Well, he didn't. However, he had finished all of his degree requirements and his dissertation. However, his dissertation had not been accepted because he still had changes that needed to be made in it. Basically, he got up to the finish line, but he never crossed it. Right. And it wasn't like episode 55 with Jeff Gehrman in Las Vegas, where we had people lying about their degrees because they bought them from diploma mill. Still lied, but just not making up the entire thing. Correct. The police actually wondered if Kathleen had somehow found out that James lied about his doctorate and confronted him, causing him to kill her to keep her quiet. However, this motive proved weak because James did not lose his job at Kodak, despite their finding out about his misrepresentations. Now, Kathy, it was funny because when I was doing research for this case, I read a ton of articles that used the lying doctoral degree as a motivation for murder. A lot of them. It was actually kind of surprising. I agree with you because one of the things the police said was they had no idea how, but somehow Kathleen had found out that he lied. I'm guessing he told her. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, there's an issue that came up. I got to tell you, I'm embarrassed, but I got to tell you. Exactly. But I mean, honestly, it's like concocting murder out of somebody not finishing their dissertation. I thought that was extremely weak. And not losing a job over it. Right. The money's still rolling in, sister. Like, slow your roll. (laughs) (laughs) Also in 1991, James and his daughter Sarah moved to Washington State to be near his sister and her family. And he was now working in the lumber industry. His parents bought a home in Washington as well, and they were planning on retiring there. Now, fast forward 25 years to 2016. We are now 34 years after Kathleen Krausnick's murder. It was announced that the Brighton Police, the FBI, and the Monroe County District Attorney's Office were jump-starting an investigation into her unsolved case. On May 8, 2016, journalist Gary Craig wrote in the Democrat and Chronicle that in the prior few months, police had conducted a new round of interviews that included meeting with James Krausneck, who was now living in Mercer Island, Washington. Fancy. Is that fancy? Very fancy. Mm-hmm. The police said that the district attorney's office was also looking at physical evidence for possible DNA testing. 
Now, remember, this was 1982 when it happened. Right. And the axe used to kill Kathleen had never been tested for the presence of DNA, which makes sense. They didn't do it back then. Right, exactly. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash Killer D. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Three years later, on November 8th, 2019, in Rochester, New York, James Krausnick Jr. was arrested and charged with killing his wife, Kathleen, after a grand jury handed up an indictment accusing him of murder. It appeared that this was the first grand jury to be convened to hear evidence in the case. James was accompanied to court by his daughter, Sarah, and his now wife, Sharon, and he pleaded not guilty. James was being represented by local defense attorney William Easton and Michael Wolford, the same lawyer who represented him over three decades prior. The OG baby. (laughs) Everybody, please continue listening to our podcast, despite the fact that Kathy just said that. (laughs) James was free on $100,000 bail and he surrendered his passport. He was allowed to return to his Arizona home where he and his wife had moved after he retired from the lumber industry. So, Kath, this is so interesting. So when James was arrested, his attorneys created a statement and they published it and then it totally went out on Twitter. Here we are in the 1980s, the dark ages as far as forensic testing. And now we're, you know, tweeting. Yeah, exactly. We're twatting out his attorney's letter. (laughs) Kathy 
struggles with social media. Her, please very forgive much. her. Please forgive me. Okay, so it says a statement on behalf of James Krausneck, and this was written by his lawyers. It says, over 37 years ago, Sarah Krausneck lost her mother and Jim Krausneck lost his wife. Today marks a further tragedy, Jim being charged with Kathleen's murder. Jim's innocence was clear 37 years ago. It's clear today. At the end of the case, I have no doubt Jim will be vindicated. For the past 37 years, Jim has continued to contribute to society. At the time of his wife's murder, Jim was an economist at Kodak Company and then afterward had a successful career and retired as vice president of a Fortune 500 company. His daughter, Sarah, who was three and a half years old at the time of her mother's death, was in the home at the time it occurred. She's with us today. She has traveled from out of state to support her father as he pleads not guilty. She has never doubted her father's innocence. Jim has cooperated in the investigation of his wife's murder, repeatedly giving statements to the police, consenting to the search of his home and his car. It wasn't until I became involved and it became evident that he was being targeted that I placed some reasonable conditions on any further interrogation. So obviously, Kath, that was his lawyer, Mr. Wolford, the OG, as you say. Exactly. <laughs> and just really quickly, we didn't say this at the beginning, but probably should pop this in now. The statement refers to him as Jim, not James, as we've been calling him. Well, his wife, Kathleen, was also called Kathy, not Kathleen. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's too many of us at that yeah, point. Yeah, the place is lousy with Kathy's. <laughs> exactly. She gets to be Kathleen. So yeah, we called her Kathleen. We called him James. Mm -hmm. Now, Kathleen Krausnick's family had completely changed their view of James in the 28 years since Annette's proclamation that the family was behind him 100%. Now... In 2019, she said that the family had waited a long time for criminal charges to be brought against him. In an article the day after James was arrested by Gary Craig in the Democrat and Chronicle, it said that Kathleen's family had believed for at least the past 20 years that James killed her. You know, Kath, I thought this was interesting. I saw Annette in an interview and she was saying how her sister Kathleen was very conscious of appearances and very concerned about her standing in society and would have been extremely upset that her husband lied about his doctorate. Annette Schlosser said that her 92-year-old father told her that he was glad he was still alive so that he could see justice for Kathleen. Kathleen's mother had passed away two years prior. Now, Kath, it was also not clear what evidence the police now had to charge James Krausnack. Right. And police were still not revealing what, if any results, came from the DNA test that they had had done at the FBI lab three years prior. You know, Kath, what was interesting is, as I said, James gets arrested and Mr. Wolford puts out this statement. And it felt almost in response to the statement that the Brighton chief of police, the Monroe County District Attorney, who actually was in charge of domestic violence, as well as the FBI, held a press conference. Now, the press conference is probably 40 minutes long. And it's a dog and pony show. It was a show of force. Oh, absolutely. It was the, I'm going to call it the leaders of whatever organizations they came from, introducing themselves and talking about the teamwork. And how great they all were. Exactly. How wonderful they all were. And you know what's funny is like it was 40 minutes. That's a long press conference for a trial that was pending. And so they knew at this press conference that they could not discuss the evidence. But wait, they didn't announce anything, right? They were just 
talking about what they had done. They were talking about what they had done, and the FBI talked about how they took all of the original investigators' reports and digitized them. So we're talking about creating a digital and searchable database from things that had been handwritten nearly 40 years prior. And so they were also talking about how they submitted items for testing and DNA. And again, they're not supposed to be revealing what the evidence is that's going to be discussed at trial. But the police chief made it clear that the results of the FBI analysis did not provide any evidence that a third party had committed this crime. Did he say if there was evidence of James Krausnick's DNA to show that he committed the crime? He didn't specify that. Just that there wasn't a third party. Correct. I mean, the implication was, hey, All arrows are pointing to James Krausnick. If it wasn't anybody else, it had to have been James. Right. And they referenced at least a couple times the part in James's attorney's statement that said that James was cooperating with police. And they impugned that representation by saying things like, well, the trial will show what cooperation meant to him and kind of like things like that. They were impugning his representation that he had cooperated with police. Let's put it that way. Another interesting thing at the press conference, Kath, was that the gentleman who was representing the district attorney's office was in charge of domestic violence. And they must have used the phrase domestic violence six times in the press conference. And the chief was saying this was an act of domestic violence. Honestly, what I took from it was, oh, there's going to be information admitted at trial that they had a contentious relationship. Now, James's other defense attorney, William Easton, said no authorities asked for a DNA sample from James. And since James did not have a criminal record, there was no DNA sample from him in a database for comparison. It was my understanding, Kath, that James allowed Sarah to provide a saliva and hair sample, and he did the same thing. That was my understanding as well. Attorney Wolford said that James cooperated with the investigation, giving interviews and consenting to the search of his home and his car in 1982. Wolford said that back in 1982, when James had hired him, it became apparent to him that James was being targeted by the police as a suspect, so he placed what Wolford deemed reasonable conditions on any further interrogations. Now, Kathleen's sister Annette Schlosser said it was actually James' unwillingness to continue talking to police that eventually led the Schlosser family to suspect that he had something to hide. Plus, he never let Sarah speak with investigators in the weeks following her mother's murder. So at a pretrial hearing on March 9, 2020, journalist Gary Craig with the Democrat and Chronicle newspaper reported that the defense filed a motion to dismiss the indictment, contending there had been an unreasonable delay in the prosecution, which is a denial of due process, unless the prosecution could prove the delay was made in good faith. The defense took the position that the prosecution provided no additional evidence in 37 years. A hearing was held over five days, and the prosecution justified the reason they delayed filing charges. James's attorneys argued that the 37-year delay significantly prejudiced him because of the passing away of potential witnesses who would have testified on his behalf. The original pathologist, Dr. Evelyn Lewis, died, as did two of James's co-workers from Kodak. Dr. Lewis's testimony would have placed a possible time of Kathleen's death occurring after James left for work at 6.30 a.m. because she put the time of death between, what was it? 4.30 and 7.30. The Kodak employees would have said that James had a perfectly normal day at work when they interacted with him. 
Also, there was a Sergeant Ogrodnik of the Brighton Police Department who had died, and he would have testified that Kathleen's electric blanket was off when officers arrived to process the scene. This was important because if the blanket was on, it would have changed the way her body cooled and could have played an important role in the time of her death. Investigator Thomas Schrader also passed away. He would have shed light on the Brighton Police Department's investigation of Edward Larrabee, a person the defense asserted was a likely suspect in Kathleen's murder who should have been thoroughly investigated. To counter the defendant's argument and uphold the indictment, the prosecution explained that it was not until 2019 that the prosecution had an expert opinion substantiating their timeline that Kathleen's murder could only have happened before James left for work. In order to prove their good faith at delaying the indictment, the prosecution pointed out that in 1982, Dr. Lewis, the person who performed the autopsy, informed investigators that Kathleen's time of death was between 4.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. based on body temperature. There was also testimony at the hearing that in 1986, then Monroe County District Attorney Howard Rellin consulted Monroe County Medical Examiner Dr. Nicholas Forbes. Dr. Forbes said that depending on the rate the body cooled, Kathleen died between 5.55 a.m. and 8.55 a.m. and cautioned D.A. Rellin that there was no precise way to determine time of death. After this, the D.A. determined that their sole suspect, James Krausneck, could not be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt due to lack of any physical evidence and the case went cold. Then, in 2016, 30 years later, Brighton Police Chief Henderson took another look at the evidence and brought in the FBI to look at the cold case. By mid-2017, the DA at the time, Sandra Dorley, consulted with another former Monroe County Medical Examiner, Dr. Scott LaPointe. LaPointe said that Kathleen's time of death extended to the early morning hours, but the upper end of the time frame extended into the upper morning hours when the defendant would have been gone. So even with all of these prior negative medical opinions, the investigators turned to Dr. Michael Bodden, a prominent forensic pathologist and former New York City medical examiner and chief pathologist for the New York State Police. Dr. Bodden provided an opinion in 2019 that the death of Kathleen occurred before 6.30 a.m. when James left for work. Now, this is all during a hearing. All of this evidence is coming out during a hearing by the defense to dismiss the indictment. The defense then called their own expert during this hearing who stated that Dr. Bodden's opinion was not based on any new developments in the field of pathology since 1982. So, Kat, during our research on this case, did you check out Dr. Bodden at all? Well, I did, and I've <laughs> actually checked him out in the past, too, just because he does show up at controversial. Totally does. Yeah. So what I found out looking into just easy to research sources. Right. Is that a lot of his opinions, especially those in later years, are very controversial. But it actually goes back to when he was the medical examiner for New York City, where he had people like the chief health officer of the city saying that he did sloppy work, that some of his work wasn't necessarily done correctly. And actually, he was fired. But one thing you pointed out, Kath, because I hadn't looked this up. When Dr. Bottom was testifying, 
He's 88 years old. Yes, he was 88 years old. Time to retire, buddy. So I don't care who you are. If you're 88, (laughs) please don't work. Go enjoy your life. But he, the prosecution touted him as sort of the it guy because his career, he gained notoriety way back when, when he was called in to be a consultant on the death of JFK, as well as Martin Luther King Jr., So, Kath, after getting Dr. Bodden's opinion, the case was presented to the grand jury and the indictment was handed down. So all of this testimony came out with the defense motion to dismiss the indictment. But the judge found that the prosecution met their burden to show that the delay in prosecuting James was in good faith because until 2019, they did not have evidence that they needed to prosecute James Krausnack. On Thursday, December 2nd, 2021, Judge Shiano denied the defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment. Defense attorneys at that time had also sought a hearing to challenge forensics or other sciences used as part of the prosecution, but Shiano ruled that the hearing was unnecessary and the jury could make their own determination. So, Kath, the trial was originally set to begin in the summer of 2020, but... COVID. COVID. Yeah. Opening statements began on September 6th, 2022. According to Berkeley Breen with News 10 NBC, during opening statements, one of the prosecutors, Constance Patterson, told a jury this is a tale of two stories. It was either a burglary that went bad or a murder that was set up to look like a break-in. Prosecutor Patterson then asked the jury to consider, does this look like a burglary? Do these pieces actually fit? In 1982, the Krausnecks lived across the street from a woman named Eileen Marin Keating. On the evening of February 19, 1982, she said James Krausnick came to her door with his daughter. She testified that because of what she saw when she opened the door, she told her kids to go upstairs. She asked James what was wrong, but he did not answer. Instead, he made a guttural sound and looked horrified. The jury then heard Ms. Marin Keating's 40-year-old 911 call in which she said, Please come to Del Rio Drive. There's been, I think, a murder. I have a feeling she wasn't as poised as you are right now. <laughs> I think she it's was. It's just, just a hunch. <laughs> James's OG attorney, Michael Wolford, told the jury during his opening statement that Krausnick was at work at Kodak the morning of February 19, 1982. There was no motive and there was no history of violence between James and Kathleen, who met when they were in college at Western Michigan University. The defense said the main suspect in Kathleen's murder should have been Ed Larrabee, a convicted killer and rapist who actually confessed to Kathleen's murder just before he died in 2014. The defense admitted that parts of Larrabee's confession did not align with the facts of the case, but they also said the confession was done 30 plus years later and Larrabee was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, Kathy, what was interesting about Ed Larrabee is that he was a violent sexual predator who was serving three concurrent 25 years to life terms. Now, it was when Larrabee was in prison and dying in 2014 that he claimed to kill Kathleen Krausnick. And James's defense lawyer said that Larrabee's statement, his violent history, and the fact that he lived within a half a mile of the Krausnick home in Brighton was solid evidence that he could have killed Kathleen. Now, the defense said that in 1982, when Brighton police went to question Larrabee, he would not cooperate. And so the Brighton police left and never returned. But Kath, they also talked about how in 2014, when he was dying, he started confessing to murders. And apparently some of the people that he confessed to killing were actually alive. 
two days after trial began on September 8, 2022, Brighton Police Investigator Richard Corrigan testified that on February 20, 1982, a day after Kathleen was murdered, he went to a hotel to talk to James, who was staying there with his parents and young daughter. When Investigator Corrigan got there, he testified that Krausneck and his family were already gone without having given him a second interview. The clerk at the hotel told the investigator that the family had already checked out. Investigator Corrigan testified that he got a room key and let himself in and the beds did not appear slept in. There were no damp or used towels or any indication that the family had stayed there. A week after the murder, when Investigator Corrigan went to Michigan to interview James in March of 1982, the investigator testified that James told him, please don't give up on my case. I need to know who did this. But Investigator Corrigan said that was the last time he ever heard from James or anyone in his family. During cross-examination, defense attorney Michael Wolford asked Investigator Corrigan if the Brighton police attempted to interview Edward Larrabee or do anything more about determining his whereabouts on February 19th of 1982. Corrigan's response was that he did not do any investigative work on Larrabee and he cannot speak for the rest of the Brighton Police Department. On Wednesday, September 14th, 2022, pathologist Dr. Michael Bodden was called to the stand. He was considered to be the prosecution's star witness because he pinpointed a different time of death than the original medical examiner. Dr. Bottom was asked by the Brighton Police Department in 2019 to review Kathleen Krausneck's original autopsy report. Now, just as an aside, on the first day of trial, Judge Charles Schiano told the jury that Dr. Evelyn Lewis, who was the assistant medical examiner who conducted Kathleen's autopsy, would have testified the time of Kathleen's death was sometime between 4.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., an hour after Krausnick left for work. This was done since Dr. Lewis passed away in 2018. Bodden said that he agreed with Dr. Lewis as to the manner in which Kathleen was killed, but he came up with a different time of death than Dr. Lewis's findings. Dr. Bodden believed she died well before 6.30 that morning and therefore was already dead by the time her husband left for work. He relied on partially digested food and rigor mortis, saying you could only reach that condition of stiffness after 12 hours of death. He also relied on body temperature, but used a slower rate of cooling than was the standard used by most pathologists. So, Kath, the other thing that came up with Dr. Bodden is that, as we mentioned, the electric blanket was an issue before with the defense motion. Right. Kathleen and James had an electric blanket on top of their bed. And when Dr. Bodden presented to the grand jury, he said that there were dual controls and they did not know if the electric blanket was on. He assumed it was in terms of figuring out her body temperature and the cooling rate. So basically, he was going to testify that she would have cooled off at a slower rate, presumably with this electric blanket on. Correct. However, what the defense presented at the pretrial hearing to dismiss the indictment were records that they had finally received. They got a big dump of records in August of 2020 of 3,000 documents. In the discovery. In the discovery, almost all of which were what they'd already received, except for this little note. And they were the report that was written up by the original officer. This officer noted in his report that there were dual controls on this electric blanket. Both were turned off. Now, Kath, when the defense attorney was trying to dismiss this indictment, he pointed out that Dr. Bodden, during his testimony to the grand jury, made this comment about assuming that this electric blanket was on. 
what defense attorney Easton said was the prosecutor who was in the room at the time of Dr. Bodden's testimony to the grand jury knew that this was false information and had a duty as an officer of the court to correct Dr. Bodden in front of the grand jury, and he did not do that. As a result, Mr. Easton said the entire indictment needs to be thrown out, and the judge disagreed. So at trial, I am presuming that they used this as a point of impeachment because Dr. Bodden said the body cooled at a slower rate of temperature. So you're right, Kathy. So this trial, which is happening a month ago, Mm -hmm. on September 16th of 2022, the defense began its case. And the first witness they called was Erie County Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Catherine Maloney, who was specifically called up to debunk many of the findings of Dr. Michael Bodden. She took the stand, started to pick apart the results of Dr. Bodden's review of Kathleen's autopsy. Now, as we said, Dr. Bodden disagreed with the time of Kathleen's death, saying that Kathleen was dead before James Krausnick claimed he left home for work. Dr. Maloney believed that her estimate of Kathleen's time of death was more accurate than the one presented by Dr. Bodden. Dr. Maloney said, you need to use standard practices in determining time of death. Dr. Maloney testified that she was able to come up with an approximate time of death by focusing on Kathleen's body temperature when she was found, so this is assuming hours after her death, which at the time was 81 degrees. Dr. Maloney said that by using the widely accepted treatise from an investigation of death textbook that is used by the majority of pathologists, that under most circumstances at death, they assume the human body loses one and a half to two degrees of body heat per hour. The prosecution's expert, Dr. Michael Bodden, calculated that Kathleen lost one degree of body heat per hour. So using Dr. Maloney's calculation, the murder could have happened after James left the house. Dr. Maloney did not dispute that Kathleen might have been killed before 6.30 a.m., but said it could have happened hours later. Unlike prosecution expert Dr. Bodden, who relied on the gastric contents as an important factor when determining time of death, Dr. Maloney testified that gastric contents do not help much. Pathologists can get some information from the contents of the stomach, but in terms of indicating the time of death, it was not scientifically reliable. During closing statements, prosecutors called upon jurors to use common sense to draw reasonable inferences from the evidence laid before them during the two weeks of trial. The prosecutor's central argument was this. There was no evidence of other perpetrators, so who else would it likely be? The case against James Krausneck was entirely circumstantial. None of the DNA testing done by the FBI refocused the case or yielded any results. Prosecutors used this fact to argue that the DNA evidence did not point to a third person. Therefore, James Krausneck must be guilty. The case went to the jury on Friday, September 23, 2022, and on Monday the 26th, after less than a day and a half of deliberating, the jury reached a unanimous verdict. Guilty. (music) Assistant District Attorney Gallagher, one of the prosecutors, said after the verdict that the jury came to the conclusion James Krausneck was guilty because there was no other conclusion in this case. Defense attorneys promised an appeal and confidently stated that the case would be reversed. 
when the appeal is heard, we will let you know the results. But in the meantime, James Krausneck's sentencing hearing is scheduled for November of 2022. After the jury found James Krausneck guilty, Kathleen Krausneck's 95-year-old father, Robert Schlosser, said when he returned to his home in rural northern Michigan, he had one pressing plan. Kathleen's body is currently interred in the Krausneck family plot. Mr. Schlosser is going to bring Kathleen home so that she can be interred with her mother and brother at the family plot in Mount Clemens, Michigan. We wanted to share an email that we received about episode 33 regarding Linda Collins. We try really hard to be accurate in this podcast, and we do a lot of research. And we've talked about it because, as you know, we struggle with newspaper accuracy. Exactly. A relative of Linda Collins actually emailed us and complimented our accuracy on the story. She said that listening to our podcast about her relative was the closest she had ever come to hearing the truth about what actually happened. What a compliment. It absolutely was. From the very beginning, our mantra has been, if the family or relatives of a victim listens to this podcast, how are they going to feel about how we represented them? Right. And Kathy with a C, of course, being an attorney, led us down that long winding rabbit hole of court documents. Yes. <laughs> but it's great because that is where we get the majority of our information. And it is a lot. Sometimes these are hundreds of pages of court documents. But the fact is, is that these are considered the truth. These are what people testified to in court. That's exactly right. And it's really important for us to do our best, despite our gallows humor, to get the facts as accurate as possible. You know that we joke around, you know that we'll make fun of people, but as you know, those people are only the perpetrators. Correct. And they deserve to be made fun of sometimes. <laughs> we wanted to share the compliment. We did. And thank you to Linda's yes. family member for saying that to us. Thank you all for listening. Please, if you haven't reviewed us on Apple, please do so. And please download. Downloading is the gauge by which the platforms determine how successful we are. So if you want to support us, please download. And we totally appreciate our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you so, so, so much. And if you have any cases, let us know. Otherwise, please follow us at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.